Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. Tonight is Wednesday, December 21st, 2023. Our title this evening is The Four Cups of Mystery, Part 2. Subtitle, The Pendulum Swing. This evening will be a notes light serviced, at least for me, with a minimal number of slides, but it will in fact be content rich in every way. Amen. Furthermore, it will help you in your understanding of the total plan of God. What we're going to discuss tonight is predicated upon months of teaching. By months of teaching, I mean like 15 sermons worth. It's predicated upon unapologetic Zionist, unwavering loyalty, the Ittai Doctrine, adopted, not co-opted, reversing ignorance, and how do you read it? It's predicated upon Underground Railroad, in Christos, remembering the unforgettable song, the bridge of the unforgettable song, mystery, of course not, the bride-to-be, the servant, and the four cups of mystery, part one. Look, these 15 sermons comprise, hear me, no less than 15 hours of teaching and countless hours of study and preparation. All of these messages have been aimed at creating a pendulum swing of sorts that is namely that 2,000 years of Christian doctrine has placed believing Gentiles at the center of every promise and depiction of God's inheritance and that to the exclusion of Israel. So to put that simply, most Gentile believers have been conditioned to put themselves in the center of everything. And it takes deliberate time and effort to swing the pendulum the other way in our minds. We have correctly been learning to see Israel in the center of Adonai's plans. Can somebody agree with me and say it takes deliberate time and effort? Fifteen sermons worth at this point. The very fact that we have this bent towards seeing ourselves in the center of all of Adonai's plan, the fact that it exists, is why we have intentionally stayed focused on Israel's central role in all of Adonai's plans through the last 15 messages. The truth is that the gospel is Israel-dependent. And if we move to another topic too quickly, without having spent the time to engage in that truth, well, you would agree with us but it would fail to become a firmly rooted conviction inside of us all. Our natural inclination is to revert to seeing everything in the word as about us. Tonight, we will continue in the continuity of the prior messages, and we will build in the newer Testament on the foundation we have been acquiring from the Tanakh over the last 15 messages. Look, we're going to help you understand the total unity of the people of God, both Jew and Greek, and Adonai's plan to reconcile all things to himself. Furthermore, we're going to clear up some misconceptions that were not a part of the original intent of this series. Can I tell you that I grew up in this church, and men like Elder Charlie, like my Uncle David, like Elder John, they all remember when I learned to drive a car. They also all remember when I learned to drive a car well after much trial and error. We've been engaged in things that have not been taught on, not been preached on by Christianity at large, and we are coming back to the center that we should be on. With that in mind, in the effort to take on brand new tasks and grow in our understanding, there are always mistakes and clarifying moments that are required. Can you understand that? We've been working to swing a pendulum, and at times that means not every nuance can be included in a message, or every nuance is iterated perfectly in every statement. We're men who preach boldly, live boldly, and when needed, we clarify boldly as well. Is it all right with you if we just have a family evening tonight? Like if we preach and engage as a family? Do I have to be glued to this laptop, which I detest? Or can I be freed to engage with you in some scriptural patterns? You want to promise from me as we get started? I promise there will be no verbal traps this evening. 
I cannot guarantee what will happen on Sunday. But for this evening, I shall not be trapping you if I ask you to answer a question. You going to talk to me? Yeah. All right. We're about to begin to discuss some things that are and yet will be true on a greater level in the future. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 4. We're going to pick up in verses 16 through 17. There we go. A couple more of you there. Beginning in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Does anybody recall what Abram's name means before the name change? Exalted father. Abraham's name, which meant exalted father, was changed to Abraham, meaning father of nations in Genesis 17. That's beautiful, right? Have you considered that he spoke it to Abraham when he only had one son named Ishmael? And not Isaac. So we serve a God who calls the very end from the beginning. He especially loves to do this when it doesn't look like it is possible in the natural. And the only attempts seem to have failed. Now I learned this passage in a little different translation. One called the NIV that's easier to understand. Adonai calls the things that are not as though they were. And are current present tense. This is because when Adonai says that something will happen, it does not matter if it can be perceived as a reality yet. Because if he said it, it is already good as done, and it will come to pass. With this in mind, Abraham can rightly be called the father of many nations before it happened, and he became the father of many nations. He can also be said to have been being built into the father of many nations in his walk with God. Furthermore, we can all say now that he has become the father of many nations. Did you catch that when Paul was writing to a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, that he says he is the father of us all? As this is, of course, true by possessing and operating in the same faith as Abraham. And at this point, it should, you should be aware that while we have been included by faith, that does not abrogate the original, physical, and primary sons of Israel. Are we all on the same page with that? Yes. We're going to go over some biblical realities that are currently true because God has declared it through the authors of Scripture and yet will be true in the fullest extent in the future. Saints, we're giving you a heads up in advance. These biblical realities will help you grapple with how we can currently have distinct roles as Gentiles who are meant to serve Israel by arousing jealousy. And yet, we have the same ultimate destiny as one people in Messiah. You ready for our first one? Yeah. Our first biblical reality is salvation. Sound booth, if you track with me, we're going to go to John 5 and then roll forward afterwards. It says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Saints, the bold declaration here that is the very words of Jesus is that you may be saved through the reception of these words. In every way, this sounds like he's clearly defining that the reception of the words is salvation then and now. Let's roll forward to Romans 10, 13 together. This should be one that everybody who grew up in Sunday school knows. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Done deal says flatly, call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Paul in his discourse that leads to his magnum opus in Romans 11, he says here that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, he has further commentary. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, 
unless you believe in vain. As Paul in his letter to Corinth plainly states that our salvation is ongoing, it's still in process, and that you must hold firm, otherwise you have believed in vain. We're going to take a sampling from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 1, 8. Though you have not seen him, that being Messiah, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Peter takes this whole process a step further and declares that we must possess faith that goes beyond what we can currently see and trust in the ultimate outcome that God has declared. Saints, can I tell you that the ultimate outcome is that you will be saved. What this means is that, scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you are saved. You're also right in saying that you are being saved. And you're also right in saying that you will be saved. Let's take Romans 1.16 for just a moment. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Saints, you need to remember that this is always true of Israel first than you. Israel has been saved many times. Israel is still in the ongoing process of being saved. And Israel will ultimately be saved completely and totally. But the same exact thing is true of you along with Israel, just never without her. So, church, we're going to work through something together. You need to repeat after me, say this with me. Salvation, Salvation. First, to the Jew. first to the Jew, and also the Greek. Greek. You all want to take another biblical reality? Yeah. Let's take sanctification. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Saints, do you catch how every bit of that phrasing is in the past tense? You were sanctified. Now let's take Hebrews 10, 14 in comparison. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As in, it's an ongoing, continuous process. We're going to take 2 Thessalonians 2.13 now. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul goes on to expound on how standing firm in the gospel will cause this process of sanctification to be brought to its completion. But again, you need to notice, scripturally speaking, you are right in saying that you are sanctified currently. You're right in saying that you are being sanctified currently. And you're right in saying that you will be sanctified. So let's catch the mode of sanctification for a moment. You can see on the screen here it is, Sanctified by the Spirit. Who was first foretold to be sanctified by the Spirit of God? Oh, come on. Y'all going to talk to me tonight? Remember, there's no verbal traps. Who was first foretold to be sanctified by the Spirit of God? Israel. There you go. Israel was foretold in Ezekiel 36 and many other passages to be sanctified by the very Spirit of God. So say it with me, church. Sanctification is first for the Jew, and also the Greek. Are you all catching a pattern with me? We're going to take another one called priest or priesthood. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his very own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you catch that Peter says you are a royal priesthood? Yeah. Yeah. Sound booth, let's roll to the next slide, or next scripture. We're going to visit Peter's words just a few verses ahead of this. You all ready? Yeah. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You notice in the very same chapter that Peter both refers to you as already being the priesthood and then says you are being built into the priesthood? We're going to take Revelation 20, verse 6 together now. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. John says that they will be priests of God and Christ. Saints, many of these passages beg the question, which is it? And the reality is the answer is yes. Now, while you're looking at Revelation 26, you should remember that this is the first resurrection, which is comprised of the righteous Jews and Greeks throughout all of history that have raised a life at Messiah's return. So scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you are a priest and that you're being made into a priesthood and that you yet will be priest of God and of Christ. Each of these passages that we just read are about a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. Remember, who Adonai said it to first, though. Exodus 19 promised that Israel would become the kingdom of priests. As a divine mystery, it also happens to include you, all of those who take part in the first resurrection, which includes the faithful Gentiles. So let's take another one, but this time we're going to do it on a slide for the sake of time. The kingdom, here, being entered, and yet to arrive. See Luke 17, 21 here? Nor will they say, look here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Does that sound like you're waiting on anything? Does that sound like the kingdom's far off in a distant place? Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets... Where until John, since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Luke 16, 16 seems to indicate that we're pressing our way into the kingdom, as in it's still an ongoing process of entering it. Revelation 12, 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So once again, scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you are in the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen? amen. You're also right in saying you are entering the kingdom of God. Furthermore, you're right in saying that you will be in the kingdom of God. Look, we're going to take one more slide, again, for the sake of time that will help us define the kingdom, and then we will dispense with the use of slides from here on out, because I'm sick of slides. The kingdom is Israel and for Israel. Daniel 7, verse 14 and then 18. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. You notice that Acts 1, 6 has the disciples asking about this kingdom. They have their Messiah. They're wondering when this is going to occur. They say, so when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, I have no intention of teaching the book of Daniel on a Thursday night. But you should also know that the revelation of the 77s in Daniel 9, it begins with the angel telling Daniel that it concerns his people and his city. This point about the kingdom being Israel, both as the kingdom itself and who it is for, can easily be displayed in the law or the prophets. Frankly, I just wanted to use a writing because it's kind of our custom. The kingdom is Israel and has always been for Israel. Y'all tracking with me? Yeah. And yet, 
Acts 20, 25 closes with Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, whom if you aren't aware are Gentiles, about the message of the kingdom that was proclaimed to them. Furthermore, in Colossians, which we were blessed to learn more about on Sunday, Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Look, this was said speaking to a primarily Gentile audience. That's an astounding thing, especially when you understand how clearly through the Tanakh the kingdom is defined as Israel. So again, we're going to repeat something together. Say it with me, church. The kingdom, the kingdom is first for Israel. But it is also for the Greek. Now, are y'all ready to take a few more at a time? I mean, like more than one or two biblical realities at once? Look, I, I'm keeping a pace here so we have time to do it. Since in the last 15 sermons, we have clearly outlined that Israel is the bride, was the bride spoken of in the beginning, and is the bride to come. I think that we can safely summarize by saying that in Exodus 6 and 15, Israel is declared to be the bride through a betrothal process. I think we're safe in saying that Isaiah 54 clearly presents Israel as becoming the bride she was always meant to be through the process of refinement. And that Revelation 19, she is the bride that will be made ready. These truths are undeniably clear and should be your first and primary thought when the term the bride comes to your mind. With that said, there are a couple of statements in Sunday's sermon, Four Cups of Mystery, that is a ministry team we'd like to put on better footing with you. You ready for that? Yeah. The first aspects that we would like to clarify is the statement that the false conclusion that we Gentiles must be the bride and its accompanying general idea conveyed that the bride is not you. To clarify, this statement was intended to countermand the prevailing idea or pendulum swing that the church is a Gentile entity, the bride is a Gentile entity, and that we have superseded or replaced Israel as the central focus of God's plan. Do you understand that? The idea of a pendulum swing is that when something is stuck on one side of the field, always seeing yourself in it to the extent that you replace Israel, sometimes we are pushing a statement to help you begin to see it differently. Now here tonight, we want to state the intention of that concept more clearly. Israel is and always has been the bride, but through the groom, we will also be included with Israel as one bride, one people, and one city of God in the culmination of the ages. Y'all ready to take a second item? Second item that we would like to put on better footing is that of the picture in Revelation 19. The imagery in Revelation 19 is in fact a metaphorical setting and it's intended to convey the joy present on the day the Messiah receives his people and sets up his kingdom on earth. And that day will be like a wedding day. This is not to say that every detail of the metaphor is to be taken as a step-by-step -step roadmap as if it were blueprints designed by an engineer. Sorry, Ben. It's just not how revelation works. Our pastors on Sunday introduced a novel way to view the different parties outlined in the wedding language. Although this presentation of Revelation 19 is different than our historical teaching on the passage, it deserves the Acts 17 Berean-style consideration of every biblical student. Do you hear me? Are you going to be those of noble character who seek and find the will of God? You should be aware that there are multiple considerations for the parties involved in Revelation 19. And the depiction itself is a metaphor, not an exact description of our ultimate state. Israel is the only nation named as a bride in Scripture. But Gentiles have also mysteriously been included like a bride. This truth can be found in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul says so plainly, and in Ephesians 5, where Paul refers to the present church of Jews and Gentiles relating to Messiah as a husband and wife. Now, there's something that you need to be aware of. Metaphors by nature are not perfect, and they're intended to be interpreted as depicting an aspect of the plan of God and not 
the total picture in any singular metaphor. The best way to understand the metaphors in the Bible that depict the process of salvation and the culmination of the ages is to take them as parts of a holistic picture. In these last 15 sermons, we've intentionally worked to swing the pendulum so that when you hear the term bride, you first think of the only named nation said to be the bride. You guys understand what I mean by metaphors are not complete? Hey, a metaphor that we're all entirely familiar with. A man and his wife are one flesh. I mean, my beautiful wife on the front row, we are one flesh. Now, a metaphor, when taken out of its context, can be pressed too far. So if we're entirely one flesh, does that really mean that Sasha is the son of Eric Stevens? Does it mean that Sasha is the father of Titus Stevens? That would be strange. The metaphor taken in its proper context conveys a unity that goes beyond just friendship. Look, the last thing that we want to clarify is the concept that communion has nothing to do with being in right relationship with God. To restate the intention of that statement a little more clearly. And remember, in 15 sermons, we have had lots of new teaching and passionate statements. It's not possible for every statement to be said perfectly. To restate the intention of that statement a little more clearly, the primary and foremost implication of communion is your commitment to fulfilling your role in Adonai's plan to redeem Israel and the world through Israel. Additionally, you should beware the context of 1 Corinthians 11. It depicts jealousy, selfishness, divisions, as well as a personal holiness problems that are considered to be taking communion in an unworthy manner. Now, to be clear, to participate in Adonai's redemptive plan for Israel and the world, you of course must have the personal areas of holiness in right order as well. In a 15-sermon series and the great volume of statements that make up those teachings, it is not possible that error in our statements can be completely avoided. That's why we clarify. What we should have said is that communion is not only about being personally in right relationship with God. And personal holiness is something that is required to fulfill your commitment to God's plans and desires. Given that it's a Thursday night and we have little time to spare, I want to help you with some of the concrete imagery that is demonstrable. Somebody say demonstrable. demonstrable. It's just a fun word. Subsequent to the event described in Revelation 19 are the demonstrable imagery that we're going to cover. So with that in mind, these things that we're about to discuss are first true of Israel and also the Greek, as we've been mysteriously included through the groom, King Jesus. To help you understand and make sure that your understanding is solidified, we're going to work through some of the imagery in Revelation in rapid-fire succession. The passages that we will cover include the biblical imagery of the one bride, the one city, and the one people that are all unified under Messiah as one and the same. Are you all ready for that? Yeah. All right, we're going to pick up in Revelation 21, 2 through 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So just to get right out of the gate here. In verse 2, how many cities are there? How many brides are there? And verse 2 tells us that the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city and the bride are the same in the passage. There are metaphors and there are images that are intended to speak of Jews and Gentiles as one unified people under Messiah. Saints, we want to make something definitively clear this evening. There is no division in the culmination of Adonai's plan and the establishment of his rule on earth. And in verse 3, we're going to read this again and help you understand as we go. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Saints, is man a term that is divisive or is man a term that is inclusive? He will dwell with them, meaning all of them, all of the men who have been reconciled to him and are in the city. And whether they are Jew or of Gentile origin, he will be with them. And they will be his people. Whether of Jewish or Gentile origin, they will all be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So saints, hear me. There is no division or dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile in the culmination of Adonai's plan and the establishment of his rule on the earth. Did you hear that he called them one people? Saints, in many ways, the church presently prefigures this as it contains Jews and Greeks. But the truth is that this is still becoming a reality in its fullest extent. So in a sense, it's true in this very moment. It is becoming a reality, and it is still yet to be ultimately fulfilled. Let's take Revelation 21, 9 through 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride. You notice how there's one bride again? The bride, the singular wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Again, the bride and the wife, they're synonyms. This passage clearly presents all three as depicting the glory of the age to come. All three of these are intended to convey aspects of Jews and Gentiles as one unified people under Messiah. Whether of Jewish or Greek origin, all who are in Christ are incorporated into one bride, one wife, one city. Somebody say that with me. One bride. One, bride. one wife. One city. Saints, if you are struggling or wondering if there's any exceptions to the singular statements, then listen closely to this next passage. We're just rolling forward in the imagery that comes after Revelation 19. This is Revelation 22, 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Saints, I want you to begin to grasp hold of the destiny that you hold, a destiny that is first for the Jew and also for you, the Greek. All of them are considered his servants. All of his servants will see his face. And then his name is put on their foreheads. Does anybody have a memory of what the name of God is like? I mean, we're talking about the Hashem, the character, the body of works, the representation of who he is. You remember we went through a sermon series. We were engaging in all of the different names and characteristics of God. Yeah, yeah all of that is going to be placed on your forehead. Saints, the imagery here is of something that is now all in all and completely like the Messiah. Look, I want to review, even to the extent of repetition, a few of our unified depictions that exist among many in the book of Revelation. There is one bride. There is one city. There is one people united under Messiah. Somebody say one people. one people. That one's particularly important for you to remember. As a bride, a city, a wife, all of those descriptions are metaphors describing the one people under Messiah. I don't... I'm going to give you a few passages to read in your own time as a bonus. Anybody like a bonus? In your own time, go read Revelation 19, 13 through 14. You're going to find out that the armies of heaven are depicted in one unified force following Messiah, and they are all clothed in white garments. Go reread Revelation 20, verse 6, which we've already covered tonight, and you're going to find out it is one unified resurrection of the righteous. There is one priesthood. And there is one reign with God that is depicted. Go read Revelation 20, verse 9. And you're going to find out that the enemy marches against one group of people who are all collectively defined as the saints. 
Furthermore, you can go read Ephesians chapter 1 in its entirety with the emphasis on verse 18. And then go read Revelation 19, 8 and make your own observations. I'll give you a hint. Ephesians 1 has Jew and Gentile in view as the inheritance of Messiah. At this point in time, I think it's best that we move to our last excerpt from the closing of the canon. Not our last scripture, but our last excerpt from the closing of the canon. Y'all ready for that? Yeah. I was talking with Bajidar about this just a little while ago. Let's go to Revelation 22, and we're going to pick up in verse 16 and read through 17. Somebody say there when you're there for this one. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. You want to know what these things are? Go back and read the prior chapters. You're going to find out it has to do with one bride, one city, and one unified people. And he says, for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Shortly, we're going to review seven aspects of what we are right now. Seven aspects of what we are becoming. And seven aspects of what we will be fully as one unified people. For now, though, I want to focus on the fact that Israel is the named nation as the bride. And that we are also incorporated into the bride at the culmination of the ages through Messiah. Did you notice that Revelation is addressed to the churches? Got a demon in Siri trying to corrupt the sermon. Give me a second. You'll remember that the church or the churches are the first fruits of what? All right. No traps tonight. You'll remember that the church or the churches are the first fruits of who? But the church is also inclusive of mysteriously grafted in Gentiles like you and me. Imagine that. We're going to read Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is profound. Saints, the word profound is something that in our modern culture has been so overused as to be detestable. Somebody can say something is profound 32 times in a sermon or in a speech just to try to give some awe to a relatively meaningless statement. When Paul says this mystery is profound, he means that it is a profound mystery, as a not obvious, but a reality that is, that is being made known and will ultimately be made fully known. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, you'll remember that Revelation ended with an address to the churches. Paul understood better than most that national Israel is the bride. He also understood a profound mystery that we believing Gentiles would also be incorporated into the bride when we all become one with Messiah at the culmination of the ages. So hear me, the bride, the city, and the unified people of God are all imagery that is intended to convey the same thing. Jew and Greek as one people under Messiah. They, the people of God, comprised of first the Jew and also the Greek, will all be united under Messiah and totally one in Messiah. At this point, I think it's appropriate to state flatly that this ministry has said for decades that we will be saved with Israel, but not without Israel. Israel is the named nation as the bride, but we will also be included in the bride through our reconciliation in Messiah. Now that we've successfully begin to swing the pendulum over the last 15 sermons. What I mean by that is for the first time in your Christian walk, you're not reading yourself into every passage and you're asking, am I in this passage? Now that we've begun to swing the pendulum over the last 15 sermons, helping you understand that you are not the center of the story, but are instead mysteriously included in the story. It's appropriate to review seven things that you are, that you are becoming, and that you yet will become. Y'all ready? You've already learned them. We're just putting them in series. You are, you are being, and you will be saved. You are, you will be, and you are being sanctified. Saints, you are priest of God. You're being made into one priesthood. 
and you will be one priesthood. You are in the kingdom of the Almighty right now, and you are forcing your way into the kingdom. And yet there is a day coming when we will all much more fully realize what it looks like to be in the kingdom. You are able to say that you are included in the bride, married to Messiah. And yet the full reality of that is ongoing every day that you're becoming more like him. And there's a day when you will be fully included in the one bride. You are included in the one city that is ruled by Messiah. And you are growing every day in the progress of that. And a time is coming when it will be fully realized. You are included in one people, meaning Jew and Greek under the care and authority of Messiah. And you are progressing in that biblical reality, making it fully known. So to say this another way, scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you're saved and you're being saved and that you will be saved. But say it with me, church, for that to be true. How does salvation work? Salvation is first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you're sanctified. You're being sanctified and that you will be sanctified. So say it with me, church. Sanctification, Sanctification. is first for Israel. And also the Greek. Greek. Praise God for that addition. Scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you are a priest, that you are being made into a priesthood, and that you will be priest of God and of Christ. So we're going to say it again. Priesthood Priesthood. is first for the Jew. And also for the Greek. I want to take it again. Scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you are in the kingdom of God and that you are entering the kingdom of God and that you will be in the kingdom of God. But who, how does this work? The kingdom is first for? And also for the Greek. If you're in this room tonight, you're still wrestling with how you can be in the bride if Israel is the bride. I want you to understand that it is the exact same as your salvation, your sanctification, your priesthood, and the kingdom that you participate in. You are included in all of those things. And all of those things are first for the Jew and also for the Greek. Furthermore, the process of inclusion has begun. It is a reality, one that you can stand in and declare before it is fully known. But that reality is not nearly complete until we reach the culmination of the ages. Inclusion in the bride, the city and the people of God, was always first and foremost for Israel as the predestined nation. But it is also for the Greek, meaning us Gentiles who've been grafted in by the groom. So to put this in summary, scripturally speaking, you're right in saying that you are included in the bride. You are being made ready as the bride and that you will be included in the bride. This is true first for Israel and also for the Greek. This is because our God calls the very end from the beginning. He can say that something is true and say you are Abraham, father of many nations. When the tangible reality is that there's no evidence of that yet, but because he said it, it is true now. Because he has declared it, it is the ultimate outcome. Because he said it, it is true and its ultimate reality Well, it will be realized in the coming culmination of the ages. The same is true of the imagery of the one city and the declaration of the one people of God. But you're not any of those things without Israel. So say this with me, church. The bride, the the city, city. and the people of God. God. First for Israel. Israel. And also the Greek. All of these things are declared realities that help you understand the ultimate goal of God. None of these are fully realized yet. They are are the place that we will ultimately arrive in, and yet they're a tangible reality at the same time. They are, however, no more complete than your current salvation and sanctification. To say that you are a part of the bride is to say that you are saved, and yet there is an awful lot more work ahead of us. Look, we must finish our role in the plan of God by acting as servants on behalf of Messiah and his people for these things to be brought about in their ultimate and fullest extent. I'm on a mission to finish within our time allotment that I'm creeping up on. So we're going to take two excerpted passages 
means to clear up your understanding of the mode of salvation for all mankind. And then we're going to go back to John's words in the book of Revelation for our closing and call to action. So our first excerpt, Romans eleven twenty four, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, the best way to understand metaphors in the Bible that depict the process of salvation, the culmination of the ages, is to take them as parts of a holistic picture. Here in Romans 11, Paul is helping us understand how both Jew and Greek come to inclusion in Messiah as one people. The olive tree in this metaphor, it's Messiah. He is the main trunk of the tree. The unnatural branch that is being grafted in is you, the Greek. Your inclusion is through being grafted into Messiah. You're not included by replacing or superseding Israel in any way. The natural branch is Israel. Israel is also grafted into Messiah. The picture is that through Messiah, both Jew and Greek become one people, one olive tree. Now to help you understand the wedding imagery, the nation of Israel is the only named bride. Hear me, the only branch named to be the natural branch that will be found to be made whole in Messiah. With that in mind, the grafting in is first for the Jew and also for the Greek. We will all be made one with him. I want to say a couple of things clearly just to help people in their understanding. There are not two modes of salvation for Jews and Greeks. There are not two different destinies for Jews and Greeks. The same salvation the same in Christos, the same in Christ has appeared first to the Jew and also to the Greek, praise the living God. This results in the Jew and the Greek becoming and included in Messiah as one people and one olive tree. We're going to take our second excerpt. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to get verse 23 and then verse 28. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Since you see, Christ is the first fruits, and at his coming, all who belong to Christ will be with him. Let's skip down to verse 28 and get a summary statement. When all things are subjected to him, and what a day that will be, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Saints, we currently have distinctions in our roles as Jews and Gentiles. You've been learning about your role in making Israel envious for Messiah. But you must understand the ultimate outcome is that we will be all and all in Christ at the culmination of the ages. What we're going to do now is we're going to take just a couple minutes in Revelation 1. And we're going to start in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Are those uh, seven churches in Turkey all Jew or all Gentile? Those seven churches are a mixed group that is Jewish and Gentile. So who is he writing this to? It says grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Saints, I want to tell you, you are saved, and you are being and will be saved. You are and are being sanctified, and yet there's an ultimate outcome when you will be fully sanctified. You are those who must stand in a priesthood that you have now while you're being made into a priesthood and ultimately will be priest of God and of Christ. You are standing in the kingdom, and yet you're forcing your way into it at the same time and will ultimately be a participator in the kingdom in the age to come. You are our being and will be included in one bride married to Messiah. You are, are being, and will be included in one city ruled by Messiah. 
You are or being and will be included in one people, Jew and Greek, under the care and authority of Messiah. Saints, all of these things can be true of you because we serve the God who is, who was, and is to come. Saints, with that in mind, we must learn to be a people who can stand and reflect him in all areas of our life, and especially in his ultimate redemptive plan for Israel and then the world. We must learn to be men who have the faith of Abraham and can receive a name like Abraham while you have one son that is named Ishmael, not Isaac. Men who can speak in agreement with God and declare the realities of things that we have a measure of but have not reached the fulfillment in. Saints, many of the practical areas that we've been engaging in this reality it's the faith to believe that God will bring to pass the calling that he gave you. The faith to believe that God will give you the spouse that he spoke of. The faith to believe that he will give you the children that he spoke of. And all of these are the same kind of faith that were displayed in Abraham. And it's nowhere more pertinent than in our faith that God will bring about his ultimate desire in his people Israel. And as one unified people with the Jew and the Greek all in all in Christ. So at this point, I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to talk about a couple of things that are a response to this kind of message. Then we're going to enter into worship. And in the same way that we've been preaching about the ability to see and declare that we are saved, and yet you know you're still in the process of it, and you will ultimately be. We're going to begin to worship. And in our worship, we're going to declare the very promises of God for his people. The very promises of God that he has made to us as men who are serving his purposes and his people. In every way, from the back of this room to the front, and Nolan, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see your wife in good health and that God is delivering us again and again. And we're going to begin to declare the ultimate realities of one unified people under Christ. And we're going to walk like it. We're going to act like it. We're going to wear the name that says Abraham before the world. While we still have not yet seen all that is promised. Are you ready to summon and begin to rouse that kind of faith? The kind of faith of a people who know the end from the beginning and can speak in the face of darkness and say, I know the end of the matter. I serve him who is, was, and he is to come. Then raise your hands with me. Father, we are blessed to be stirred by you. Lord, we're asking that as we worship this evening, Lord, that you might give us a greater measure of faith a greater measure of unity among one another and unity with your plans, with your desires, with your goals. Lord, that we might be able to stand during the darkest days that are coming upon the world, never to be matched, and to stand in the midst of that darkness and declare what is, what is happening, and what will come, because we know you, our God. Lord, will you breathe on us this evening and cause our faith to continue to rise? Lord, will you bring healing to bodies in this room? Lord, will you bring unity in a supernatural way to us? Let your spirit begin to unify us like you will at the culmination of the ages as we begin to testify to who you are and what you will accomplish through your church. Feels good, doesn't it? I want to read those seven last concluding statements from Pastor Judah's sermon this evening because not only are they clarifying, but they are faith building to state them together as a body. You are, yeah, let's do it this way. I am, I am being, and I will be saved. I am, I am being, and I will be sanctified. I am, I am being, and I will be made into one priesthood. I am, I am being, and I will be made 
I am, I am being, and I will be a participator in one kingdom. Oh, you guys are doing good. I am, I am being, and I will be included in one bride. That's right. That means married to Messiah. I am, I am being, and I will be included in one city. Last one. You ready? I am, I am being, and I will be included in one people. You guys did it. It's so good as we focus on the many names of Adonai, the many names of our God, and we look back on Revelation chapter 1, and the way that he opens up that entire chapter with a statement that I was this, I am this right now, and I will continue to be this until the culmination of the ages and through the end of time. When you focus on a Messiah, and a God that has that kind of character, then there is one ultimate thought and meditation that you have to go away with. We've been dancing in Romans 8 all night. So we're going to go to Romans 8, and we're going to look at the culmination of that chapter right before Paul goes into Romans 9, 10, and 11. This is Romans 8, 37. Speaking to a Jew and a Greek combined church here in Rome. He says, no. No. What, what is he talking about? He says, no in all things. What, what is he referring to here? Where he's, he's referring to the difficulties. He's referring to the trials. He's referring to the situations of famineous, naked, danger, sword. All the difficulties that you and I are experiencing right here and right now. And he says, no. Stop dwelling on those things. Stop thinking on those things. Stop putting your head in those things and look to the God whose character is the one who was, who is right now, and who will be forever and ever and ever. When you lift up your eyes to a, a God and a king like that, he says, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors. You know, the translation that I happen to be reading from tonight, it says, no, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. As we walk out this door tonight, we're going to live, work, think, speak, abide in, engage with one another, like this ultimate victory, this complete victory is true today, right here and now, because the truth is, is that it will be in the ultimate culmination of the ages. You want people to be jealous of your way of life? You live this way right here and right now. You want to lift up your brother and help lift up his head and encourage him? You live in the complete victory of Jesus Christ right here and right now. Lift up your hands with us. Begin to pray. We're going to ask the Lord for this kind of mentality as we walk out tonight. Father, we thank you not only that you were mighty God, not only that you are the reality in our lives right now, but that you will be forever and ever and ever. And we dwell in you. We dwell in victory. No, we dwell in complete victory through you, Messiah. We thank you that we have found our victory in Christos, in Messiah, in your great character, and in the victory that you have already displayed. Father, we refuse to be found in any other way. Lord, we change our own perspectives to reflect you in a way that glorifies you, mighty God. 
Lord, we speak to each other. We speak to our families, mighty God. And we speak to our neighbors in a way that reflects your great and ultimate victory. Lord, we dwell in the culmination of your great and ultimate victory as we leave. And we say hallelujah in Jesus' name. Amen.